everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Samantha Ski, President and Chief Revenue Officer for She Knows Media, a women's lifestyle digital media company. She Knows Media is home to popular brands like Stylecaster and HelloFlow, and is also the host of the annual Blogger Conference. Prior to She Knows Media, Samantha worked for brands like Recycled Bank, Alloy Media and Marketing, and the Walt Disney Company. So let's get to know her a little bit better and welcome her to the show. Samantha, thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. So, Samantha, you've been around the digital block a few times, and you've probably seen a world of transformation throughout your career. I saw that you even led e-commerce development at the Walt Disney Company in the late 90s, which must have been a really interesting time to focus on that. Is there anything that's really surprised you in terms of the evolution of digital? That's a good, yeah, great thing to think about. Um, I think it's hard to be surprised at this stage of, of my career in digital because, you know, it's one of those, the only thing constant is change. Um, so I, nothing has, has shocked me. Um, actually, backtrack, no, I was shocked by social when social platforms came up because that was, you know, really, truly disruptive to the entire digital media ecosystem. And I think I was surprised, no longer, of course, but surprised at the time by the rate of adoption and the degree to which our advertising and uh, consumer engagement landscapes changed. And, uh, you know, and that was just the the trajectory towards user-generated content and the value thereof was a faster sprint than really any seriously game-changing evolution I had seen in other years and time periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there anything that you're really monitoring right now or something that you think marketers should pay attention of in terms of digital or media? Yeah, I do. I think the context is something that hasn't hasn't been evaluated from an analytics and research standpoint as much as it deserves. And by context, I mean um, I mean content adjacency, editorial environment, and you can see through autom- you know automated um, advertising buying, so programmatic um, and PMPs do look at context um, in terms of the pre- using premium publishers um, and avoiding the idea of bot traffic for sure and um, avoiding adjacency to hate speech or other negative brand impacting content. However, uh, there is not currently a truly automated way to align a food advertiser with food editorial, um, nor is there a, a truly automated way to understand whether that food advertising would perform better next to food content or next to uh, Kim Kardashian's latest gown content. So I think understanding the role that uh, that envi- editorial environment truly plays in advancing um, advertisers' objectives is an area that I'm really interested in and that I think will get more, um, more attention and more research. And what do you think has prevented the industry from getting further in terms of developing that area? I think it's hard to automate and that there's been a lot of focus on automating um, audience reach. And that is, 
really smart. I think that having the ability to buy um, through automated systems to buy very specific uh, demographic audiences it makes a ton of sense. It's more efficient. There's fewer humans in the process um, who need to be involved. It eliminates a lot of waste of sort of of time and a lot of qualitative decision making. So I, I think that that's very productive. A lot of ad tech companies are, are doing well by advancing again the specificity of, of audience um, audience targeting, and you know, likewise, Nielsen and other you know large players are and Google are are doing well by making audience targeting easier. So that's where the emphasis has been. Second emphasis, which was highly predictable, is um, having a vetted list of, of publishers with whom an advertiser will run, so that you're not out buying an audience wherever it may lie online, regardless of environment um, and regardless of sort of tone. So there is now a trusted, an approach to identifying and validating trusted brands. So we're lucky at Chino's to be on most of those lists as are, you know, the usual suspects, you know, from Condé Nast to Hearst to Meredith, um, Facebook in many cases. So, so the, the understanding the macro environment is, has been a more recent development in automated buying, but the micro environment, so for example, she knows covers food, health, parenting, beauty, uh, they are not well automated. The, the, the placement of ads in that, those micro environments and vertical content areas has not been automated because it's hard and because it was less massed than those other types of, of uh, so more difficult to scale than those other types of targeting that have been developed well. Yeah, I want to talk about your company, She Knows Media, a little bit more. I know it's very much about community. So can you tell me a little bit more about the company for some of our readers who aren't as familiar with it, as well as the role that community plays for brands today? Yeah, so community is a, you know, a catch-all, I think, for um, a, a, a large group of people, or small, but usually large, a uh, group of people who share some degree of interest and values and who are uh, producing and or propagating content um, that can be used to extend a publisher's audience, um, to build a larger um, and more engaged base of, of users or readers, and to deliver kind of authentic propagation and integration for brands and advertisers. And that's, that is the role community plays for us. Um, and we, we do engage, I'd say, more than most companies Maybe any company I can currently think of, we engage more offline with our community through our our events, which are large and produce live content and put, you know, 150 women on stage um, in front of, you know, 2,500 um, in the room humans. So our community uh, commitment and strategy extend from online to offline and back again. Now, a lot of people can say, you know, oh, I have a Facebook page, and that's my community, or I have followers on Instagram, that's my community. But what's the secret to really building an engaged community and, you know, a group of followers that come back and visit you time and time again? How do you nurture that? Well, that's, yeah, I think that's the challenge we'll all be, you know, addressing for the, for the foreseeable future. And what I've seen um, is that communities have to have a pretty deep point of view in order to maintain uh, engagement. So generalized content that does not is not personalized or 
um, really catered to a specific point of view is less likely is less likely to uh, engage an overall community. That content can be distributed in the same way that you know that any of us who distribute through top-down editorial would distribute content. Uh, some of it will be interesting. Other will not be. Other pieces of content will not be interesting. But to truly engage a community, I think you need a certain percentage, and I would start with you know ten percent, which is very high. Need to be producing content, and uh, your engagement rates should be um, constantly honed. And the editorial strategy or the poke and push strategy should be developed based on an ongoing sort of moment-to-moment assessment of the community pulse. So it's a it's a it's much more of a living, breathing thing. And I think it community requires a much more personal voice or set of voices um, because it is meant to feel. Uh, like a relationship, like a, you know, a, a true source of, you know, what does community mean um, in terms of origins and definition. It's about a shared value, a shared interest, um, and not just in the sense that we all like Vogue magazine, but rather that we are all pursuing um, a certain outcome, a certain dream that is um, that we're all contributing to. So I think contribution and engagement are fundamental to the health of a community and perpetual attention to uh, what that community is, is producing, is responding to, letting them get angry in certain instances, allowing for um, more authenticity and voice. Those are all hallmarks of a robust and engaged community. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So how do you deal with an angry uh, community member, someone who's displeased with maybe their community experience? I think we've all seen those news stories about you know someone going on a Twitter rant or posting something not so positive on social media. So how should brands respond to that, or should they respond at all? Yeah, I think they should respond for sure. I'm strongly in favor of response rather than silence or press release or some other stilted um, marketing approach or, or you know, a PR approach. Um, now, if, we, if we're getting negative feedback, which we absolutely often do within, especially within our community, our blog, her community, and I, I would reframe it as not negative community, I'm sorry, negative feedback, but constructive feedback. I know that's hard. <laughs> you know, something I, I toil with with my, my, my children as well. Um, to be constructive and not negative, but uh, but I think that we look at it as useful information about our user base. Even if I disagree, or the community managers disagree, or the majority of the community disagrees, usually it is the case that negative feedback or discordant feedback um, generates incremental feedback from other perspectives. So without some degree of tension, um, it's it's hard, frankly, to to keep a community engaged. It's rare that we just sit around congratulating each other on our great content production and great point of view. So uh, thing one I would say is that um, allowing for uh, disagreement is fundamental to a truly authentic community experience. Now when it's a, it's a brand, like a consumer brand that is not a publisher but is a, you know, a producer of sneakers or of um, soda and the negative feedback is about their product or about their advertising, that's gonna, that tends to strike a real nerve with large corporations and large consumer brands and frankly very few are practiced in how to respond to that. It's usually in the past, you know, many, many decades it's been hunkering down, you know, contemplating a very fair and reasonable response that will essentially uh, quiet the, the, the consumer or even stifle the consumer feedback so or silence. 
which is also another way to silence a community um, a community voice is to not respond, which again, I'll know that works with kids and works with um, with adversaries after a time. If you're banging away um, on a point and no one's responding, you probably lose interest. So I, I, I generally don't think that's wise unless it's a total outlier voice. And it's just so unreasonable that responding would be almost invariably counterproductive and validating. Like, for example, if you're responding to Trump, you probably should not bother. Um, but if it's a Coca-Cola brand, for example, and there is a um, strong opinion that might be misinformed about use of, of, um, of some kind of artificial sweetener in a beverage, um, and if it is misinformed, um, or, you know, or potentially there are multiple uh, uh, valid uh, data points, then I think responding is wise and informing um, and also validating that that is a, a concern and it's a fair concern and accepting that there are compromises in producing a product or a brand for a large consumer base. So it's a long answer, but I think it's... Um, it's a really, that is still a new area for most major corporations, understanding how to communicate. You can see universally pretty much, I would say, I'm not sure it's universal, but I, there are lots of great examples from Facebook to Delta um, where the mea culpa to Starbucks, where the mea culpa on like a bad advertising campaign, a bad user experience, um, the mea culpa has really increased loyalty. Um, so, uh, you know, and not just mea culpa like a press release, but really getting into the conversation with your 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 customer base. Um, so that's my that would be my advice and my perspective. It would be nice if we all sat around congratulating each other, though, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be lovely? It'd be so boring. It'd be so boring. No, you don't want that. <laughs> no, I think brands are kind of dealing with a really scary time in the sense that, you know, our country is in a very polarized state, and not every consumer is going to agree with the brand's point of view, and, you know, they're not going to be able to please everybody. So for marketers who might be a little bit scared and not know how to really define this is what our point of view is and this is how we're going to articulate it, what kind of advice would you give them? I think that, uh, you know, t dipping a toe in the water um, first. So you mentioned Facebook groups. You can have private Facebook groups. You can produce private online communities. There's a lot of good software for that and begin to invite um, highly loyal customers in and, and, and try your, your lot at community management. Um, encourage more robust dialogue there. Now, of course, you could, you know, screenshot or distribute a community, a private community conversation to a larger audience, but it, frankly, it just doesn't happen that often. It's usually those who, uh, for on, a, on a brand's behalf, those who decide to join a private community of, of customers for the purpose of feedback and insight generation and product development are typically, you know, pretty constructive because they've they've joined, which is a big filter. Um, so I would say, you know, dip a toe in, begin with. Um, you know, begin with uh, sort of testing your ability to have an, uh, a productive conversation that values various viewpoints. Um, finding good community managers is tricky because um, you need people who are not going to jump to the defensive because that is usually going to stimulate the negativity. So I think um, beginning gently, um, 
You can launch a Facebook group and see what sticks and stay within safe bounds um, and have the ability to turn off comments. These are all, these will, none of these will be winning strategies, but it allows you to go sort of step function through your learning process. So, I, yeah, and I think building communities into actually another good idea is to build a community experience with another brand who already has a community. So, for, you know, and not to toot our own horn, but many brands um, build a community strategy into our blog, Her Platform. Um, we just, you know, finished our annual event, which is enormous and has loads of brands who are looking to communicate with bloggers and social content creators. So they hop into the blog, Her Environment, produce a, an experience um, within sort of the, you know, the context of blog, Her, whether it's an expo hall or a stage communication or a private party. These are all leveraging an already productive relationship between our, you know, over a decade old um, platform and this blogging community. So I, I think that that you know that's a that's another way to, to test out how you're going to perform without overcommitting. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your title a little bit because I think it's really interesting. Um, you're president and chief revenue officer, as we mentioned. So you're really accountable for that bottom line. So yep. how do you ensure that the content that you're helping brands create and the strategies that you're helping them create actually generates revenue and not just top of funnel metrics? Yeah, so I think the digital is becoming more and more, I mean, at a breakneck speed, has become much more accountable. And we are digital first. We have, as mentioned, we have a, a strong event series, but that's even that is really referring back to productivity within our digital environments. Um, and it, you can move quickly in digital in terms of optimization for the purpose of investing and, and driving returns. So um, we, you know, everything from our editorial strategy to our, our uh, revenue strategy, um, the, all of those functions are linked. Now, it's hard to do that without stifling one department or another, but um, for a company of our size, which is, you know, about 120 people and, you know, our reach is large, but it's all women's lifestyle, so it's, and it's all, you know, meaning it's not news, it's not politics, it's more evergreen content and topical information about, you know, less polarizing subject matter. So, um, so for our company and our profile, you really can link uh, editorial performance, meaning a piece of health content yields a higher monetization opportunity than a piece of entertainment content. However, you can produce 20 pieces of entertainment content in the same time that you can produce one, you know, well-vetted piece of health content. So that's something I have to be aware of. It doesn't immediately say, then produce a bunch of, of content about pop culture, nor does it say, let's only do health. It's, it's constant titration. So, um, so beyond just looking at, you know, how are we marketing and selling ourselves and what bottom line are we driving, I have to look at the editorial investment, the product investment, the tech investment. If your page loads, you know, um, 30%, it takes 30% longer to load a page, that's a loss of revenue. But maybe that page load, um, I'm sorry, the page load is a loss of engagement but might increase revenue because there's yet another um, opportunity for a brand integration. But then it reduces revenue because you get fewer page views. So there's all sorts of great data to help you drive a tighter, loop um, and that's it's hard to be a senior executive right now in a company of this size if you don't know how to use all that all that data 
know, you've worked with some really fun brands like Carnival Cruise and Vicks Vapor Rub to create some cool content. So mm-hmm. what does good content mean to you and what's the secret to not only making it but also ensuring that it's seen? Yeah, so the, I mean, I love working with brands on content and it's extremely vexing sometimes <laughs> because there's a space between a commercial and a piece of branded content and not all brands, not all publishers are able to create that balance um, or manage that tension. So a commercial in the traditional uh, format that's not maybe a groundbreaking Apple ad <laughs> that's you know really makes us laugh and cry. Um, a traditional commercial is very product heavy. It um, does not feel like a natural human speaking and, and with the advent of user-generated user content, we've all as content consumers gotten much more used to authentic communications. So it reads, you know, standard traditional uh, television commercials or video commercials really feel false to many users and feel really um, intrusive if you're in the path of, you know, having an online conversation, sharing or creating a piece of content and you get, you know, a Verizon ad that may feel tone deaf to that environment, that's that's unpleasant. Um, so that's something that we have to be aware of is the, the, uh, the delta between a piece of commercially driven content that is first and foremost about the product and a piece of branded content that takes into consideration the environment in which the content's being consumed but also has an eye towards uh, uh, really metrics-driven value back to the advertiser who's funding that content. So smart branded content looks at the relationship that the publisher has already established with um, his or her user base and then builds into that. So, for example, with Carnival Cruises, we have, we serve, you know, tens of millions of moms across the country who are looking for fun stuff to do with their kids and they're looking for the sort of the ability to um, enjoy themselves on vacation but also ensure that their kids are having a great time and that maybe they have a tiny amount of time for romance with their partner. So, uh, that can be funny. That combination of, of, of objectives can produce funny content it can, while also being useful and informative content. So that's our approach is to be to leverage essentially to produce either humor, intense inspiration, or highly functional and ex- uh, consumable, accessible utility. Um, and, and preferably at least two of those attributes will be present in any piece of branded content we produce. Um, so again, if you're, you're either funny and useful, inspira- inspiring and useful, um, or inspiring and funny. So, and that will typically, for us, that formula will produce interest and engagement from our existing user base. Now, distribution is more complicated because it's not just through our traditional websites um, where the majority of our reach and our audience exists. It's also um, figuring out how best to integrate with social and how best to distribute to different social audiences in the right format because you're not going to put a two-minute piece of branded content in front of your Facebook audience or in front of your Instagram audience. And Snap is yet another way to get behind the scenes on some of these shoots and to um, really produce fun, authentic content, but it's not going to follow a commercial narrative or even a product narrative. So um, it's going to be much more brandy, like brand um, experiential. So it's, a, it's really a fun game right now to try to produce great branded content. We've hit it on certain um, platforms with HelloFlow. Um, there have been amazing successes in um, producing content for 
Procter & Gamble brands, for Kimberly Clark brands around subject matter that can be really uncomfortable, where we used humor. Um, we've had, you know, similarly, some really funny and informative content that we've produced on behalf of Vagisil. So, so health is a really robust area for us, as is parenting, which is Vicks Vapor Rub. Having kids actually produce the commercial um, because that is the target, um, in a sense. It's, it's a connection between mom and, and kid when they're sick. Um, and then in the case of Carnival, really showing the humor in, in the mom experience of trying to balance so many different forces on vacation. Mm-hmm. Now, you were also a 2015 DMN Marketing Hall of Fame honoree. And I was going over your profile, and in it, you said that you actually stepped away from media in 2008 to focus on social causes. So, what kind of skills did you gain working for these kinds of organizations, and what are you able to apply to your current role? Okay. Um, so I think that social cause for me has become fundamental to any role I, or job I take, essentially, or uh, initiative I work on. And that is because life is short, and I'm older now, and have children, and worry about the you know producing a, a better world for 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 everyone. So uh, you know that's just something I came to when I got to a point where I felt like I had some decent skills, which was sort of the first order of business was to produce some kind of skill set that could be, you know, that could be useful to, uh, to companies and, and humans. Um, after feel, getting to a place where I felt fairly confident about certain aspects of my skill set and my experience, I realized, you know, that I could, um, in certain instances, drive a social impact while simultaneously building a, a productive business. It's not easy, and it was a struggle for us at Recycle Bank. It's been, you know, it, it is an ongoing struggle for us to balance these things that she knows and blog her and Hello Flow. Um, but it's worth the struggle, I think. And um, for me, it's if I focus on a cause that I care about, in the case of Recycle Bank, it was uh, sustainability and environmental action with Mainstream. In the case of She Knows and, and Blog Her, we're focused on uh, on human equality and on celebrating uh, women's voices and empowering women in particular. Um, so it's it's uh, you have to be really clear on what your metrics are. I think is the advice or the insight I've gleaned is that um, if you're just trying to do good while simultaneously trying to drive profit and productive um, uh, for-profit business, it's really hard. You can get muddled, and you might find people who are good at one and not the other in your in your employee base, or you'll argue about where how to make decisions, you know, for profit or for purpose. So I think having very clear metrics and engaging as many employees as possible in a, a double um, a double kind of KPI um, strategy is is fundamental to success. But it is hard. You know, it's hard. I'm I'm still learning how to be productive in that zone of profit plus social impact. Another thing that really stuck out to me in your profile was the following tidbit of, tidbit of advice. You said, as long as you try hard to succeed, failure is fine. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit more about this and a time that maybe you failed and learned from it? Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I, that's something I've come around to probably to validate, to validate some failures along the way. I, I will tell myself it's just a matter of whether you tried, but I think it, it's, uh, I think the failure of omission, like you just failed to try something is, is a really sad and, uh, and insidious kind of, um, of, of experience. 
So if you really want to, you know, get your PhD or um, or learn to code or you know spend Wednesdays with your your daughter um, and you just don't do it because it's too hard or it's too um, although it's a persistent um, nagging desire and you just can't get there because it's just straight up too hard or seems inconvenient. Those are the kinds of, of failures that I think really nag at me. Um, but the, the, if you just try it really hard and then fail, so any one of those, those things that I mentioned, which might all be things that I, I've myself wanted to do, um, trying it, trying to balance it, trying to get your, your, your time in, trying to ma- manage your people better to allow them to have more give back time or, you know, any one of these things that plagues you that you, um, that you want to do, I would generally give it a shot. The other side of that, so that's kind of, the, again, addressing the failure of omission in terms of the things you don't try to do. Um, you know, there are loads of businesses that fail every day. And I think if we only go with safe bets, we will not learn as fast. And some of my failures um, that have been most productive, I would, I would sadly put Recycle Bank on the list of failures in that we failed to scale at the rate that we had hoped to scale um, and to produce the combination of positive behavior change along with a sustainable profit margin. And there's so much more learned when you fail, for me at least, because um, you're really ruminating on what the decisions you made and, and what you could you've done differently, where I don't look back a lot or analyze um, outcomes as much when I succeed in something. I just, uh, I'm like stoked and then I move forward. Um, so I think failure is kind of essential to learning about ourselves and, and improving. Um, but I hate it when I fail and I'm like, oh, I should have done this, this, and this. And I, I'm, I don't feel like I really gave it all I had. And I just, yeah, I hate failing in general. I prefer winning. I I don't think you're alone in that. (laughs) You and I also talked for an article about femvertising, which is a term I believe she knows media coined. So can you define it for our listeners and really talk about the role that it's playing in the industry today? Yeah, so I think femvertising came up for me as the idea that you can shape positive values and empower women and girls while simultaneously selling a product. They don't have to be one or the other. And this kind of gets to probably an ethos that I endeavor to um, keep present in my life all the time, which is that purpose and profit can be, um, can, can live together. Um, so I think for advertising, it's, you know, I've spent 25 years in digital media and it's become clear to me that, that advertising uses up a huge um, percentage of the of the airwaves and the space of consciousness every day for most Americans. Um, and you could say the global community, but I'll prefer just to Americans here because the percentages are more accessible to me. Um, but given all of that, um, all of that mind space that we're taking up in advertising, it's concerning to me if the values that are promoted are just the stereotypes. Even let's not say values; it's broader. Let's say stereotypes that are being promoted are directly impacting girls' self-esteem or directly impacting um, inclusiveness for same-sex couples, for example, or directly impacting racism um, and validating stereotypes in that zone. So, and there's a 
ton of ads you can find that will do all of the above. Um, maybe not simultaneously, <laughs> but who hit uh, at least one of one of these areas that I think are really negative for society. So, um, and there are ads that have emerged that I've you know I've gravitated to over my career that are I think are really driving more positive perceptions. So, um, so that you know is just something that I was I was I was contemplating over a long time and in, in advertising is, is the you know how you can produce um, empowering positive um, images and language while simultaneously advancing your product and I think the latter part of that point is important because you know if, if doves ads you know as they got into real beauty um, if those ads were not advancing brand adoption they would not sustain and they you know they would become perhaps you know theoretically they might become part of your org um, commitment which is always going to be smaller than your mainstream um, advertising so it must be productive in order to be good femvertising and I think femvertising you know it was a you know we know that in the hashtag era you have to have cutesy terms I think now it's more about just normalizing um, different uh, stereotyping and, and sort of perceptions around uh, what a human should look like and so I'd move more into like normvertising <laughs> instead of femvertising now um, and just having accountability to what you're putting out in the world. Awesome. So you can generate sales and do good for the world. It doesn't have to be an either or. Yep. Well, if you're smart and if you really, really pay attention to your audience. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll spend a full 30 minutes just talking about yeah. that alone. But sure. Samantha, thank you so much for your time. Of course. You so much great insight. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. And make sure to tune in for future episodes. This has been Elise Ducray with DMN. Have a great rest of your week.